This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gapfest Elan Deficit Edition. It's Wednesday, June 13th, 2018. On today's show, Ocean's 8 is a gender-flipped continuation, reboot, revision, what will you, of the Ocean's 11 series. It stars Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett as thieves planning a diamond heist at the Met Gala. And then we discuss the phenomenon known as Instagram stories. We each made accounts and stories uh, in them. Uh, And then finally, Anthony Bourdain, a giant in the food world as a writer, a television producer, and personality, an all-around unsurpassable mensch, has died. We discuss his legacy with the food writer for The New Yorker, Helen Rosner. Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. Should we dig right in? Let's go. Ocean's 8 is a fairly standard heist picture made uncommon by its female-dominant cast. Sandra Bullock is Debbie Ocean's sister to Danny Ocean, played by George Clooney in the series. The movie opens with Debbie Ocean getting paroled out of prison, where she's planned an elaborate thieving of a crown jewel. All of this is an excuse, really, just to assemble a very fun cast of Bullock, Blanchett, Mindy Kaling, Rihanna... Helena Bonham Carter, I'm forgetting many. We'll talk about them soon. Uh, Anyway, why don't we listen to a clip? I guess what we have, my producer tells me, is a portion of the trailer. In three and a half weeks, the Met will be hosting its annual ball, and we are going to rob it. Look at you. $16.5 million in each of your bank accounts five weeks from now. That's a lot. They've got every inch of this place covered. This is the most sophisticated security in the world. All right, Dana, let me uh, start in with you. Uh, uh, This is an extension of the Soderbergh remake, Ocean's Eleven, from 2001. I mean, it's an excuse for ensemble camaraderie more than it is uh, an excuse to make a super tightly crafted movie. What uh, What did you make of this installment? Oh, such a letdown. Such a letdown, in my opinion. I mean, maybe you guys had the experience that the trailer promises and the idea of such an ensemble cast promises. I felt seriously let down. And maybe part of it is because this is not Soderbergh at the wheel, who somehow is able to magically infuse those Oceans movies with uh, with this kind of sophistication and zazz, even though they're basically just sort of empty star vehicles. This is directed by Gary Ross, who is a longtime veteran director, but has never made anything that, you know, sort of broke him into the consciousness of the public as a director. Seabiscuit is the only movie I can remember that he directed recently. And it's kind of competently put together. But the main problem with this movie to me, and I wonder if y'all will agree, is that there's no conflict. It's it's sort of like a, an episode of Entourage. And I don't think I'm the first person to have said that. It's a little bit like an extended all-female Entourage where we just occupy this fantasy space with these beautiful women with cool clothes. And then they make a really neat heist plan and it 
comes off perfectly. I mean, there don't even seem to be really any obstacles to the plan unless I missed something. So there's just this sense of, I don't know, I just found it like a, a very empty ride in which it supposedly is a hangout movie, but nobody is really hanging out and letting us get to know them. Yeah, this movie suffers from a major Elan deficit. Like, all the ingredients were there, and yet they were not put together. They they are no more than the sum of the parts, and in fact, they're less than the sum of the parts. And I went back and watched some of the Ocean's Eleven, the Steven Soderbergh Ocean's Eleven uh, scenes just to try to figure out how it is that Soderbergh constructs those in such a way that you feel swept up in the untouchability and the coolness and the precision of the plans. And I just never felt that kind of liftoff with this crew. And I'm, I'm trying to examine the degree to which that has to do with the middling execution of the movie or some kind of uh, like intrinsic hidden sexism or misogyny on my part. Like, are we just so used to men being cool in that way that it's hard to enjoy women being cool in that way in the same way? I'm I'm casting a self-examinatory eye on the contents of my uh, movie receiving brain. And I think I'm letting myself off the hook because I think this movie is just meh. Yeah, I think that's doing a lot of the work for this movie to say, oh, it's my internalized misogyny that makes it boring. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if anything, I mean, if, you know, the the expression, is it good for the Jews, right? When any, any sort of piece of art about Jewish life comes out, the whole question, is it good for the women in relation to this movie and, and other all-female reboots like the Ghostbusters one? I think it's starting to become more and more, no, it is not just de facto good for women to reboot franchises, Mm -hmm. stuffing them with women, right? I mean, at some point, first of all, it'd be great to have an original idea to execute. And that's true whether you're casting all women or not. But secondly, yeah, I mean, it just it starts to give ammo to the fanboy side that sort of says, like, women can't do action movies. It's a guy's mm-hmm. game. And right. uh, and this movie right. sort of needed to step that up. I don't think that it needed to be spouting more feminist rhetoric or anything like that. In mm-hmm. fact, I liked that it didn't foreground the fact that it was all women, although there are a couple of funny scenes where they reject the idea of including a man. But it just needed to be funnier and smarter and harder to figure out the heist and give the audience mm-hmm. like a little cognitive workout. I mean, essentially... Yeah, I mean, essentially, you just hear Sandra Bullock lay out smooth-sounding ideas, and then they smoothly unfurl. And that, that to me, is not good watching. I went in with, um, uh, or I should say I came out exactly with the um, same shadow of a doubt that Julia had, which is the Soderbergh movie was a very left-handed homage to a half-forgotten movie from 1960 with uh, kind of rat packers, if I recall. I've never seen it, Sinatra and Dean Martin. And and it's an excuse for a bunch of guys to hang out and be cool together, um, you know, and and for us to uh, voyeuristically lap it up. And I did wonder, is there something about switching the genders? I mean, is the quality exactly the same? In other words, what's what's, what's what's the movable variable here? Is it gender or the actual quality of the movie? However, I had a secret weapon in in determining this. So I went with my daughter, my 15-year-old daughter, who's desperate for screen-based uh, uh, female role models and was uh, rapturous upon seeing Wonder Woman. And she came out deflated for all of these reasons. I mean, she thought it was kind of loosely, I mean, not to impute all of my negative opinions to her, but before I'd signaled what I thought she said, kind of you know, overly loosely, kind of casually constructed, no sense of real tension, felt as though 
they all the women were sort of in a different movie. I mean, they're, for a movie built around female camaraderie, they actually didn't seem to really be relating to one another, which I thought was somewhat true. Uh, however, she did say something quite definitely and something that I felt as well, and I'm curious to get your response to it, which is that, surprise, surprise, Anne Hathaway more or less stole the picture. What do you think? Anne Hathaway was 100% the best of all the women in the movie, in part because she seems to be inhabiting a slightly different, zestier, and more fun movie. Like She seemed to be inhabiting <laughs> the movie I wished I was watching. And I do think that... Uh, there is a kind of deadpan cool in the affect of the actors in the Soderbergh versions of these films, right? Where they they aren't particularly worried about whether they can carry off the heists in those movies. Like that sense of suspense or obstacles or like, can they really crack the safe? You know, there's maybe some like ticking clock montages, but the whole vibe of the movie is like yeah these guys have got the perfect plan and they can do it like it's not actually based in conflict and Anne Hathaway's character is in like a much goofier movie than the rest of these women somehow Mm -hmm. and I get that it must have felt hard to balance being like goofy and over the top versus being an avatar of cool. Well, but she is different from the rest of them. I and mean, maybe we should establish that she's not part of this crew that gets gathered to uh, to to make the heist, but is rather this this ditzy starlet who you don't quite know who she's based on, but just a very vain Hollywood I type. I think she's sending up the stereotype of herself, which is part of what makes the performance fun. But is Anne Hathaway stereotyped as being ditzy and kind of um, uh, vain and self-obsessed? I thought she was stereotyped as being sort of a try-hard drama queen who was too earnest. Yeah, but really liking the attention and being like a little over the top about managing it and getting it. And that was the part that felt like it had the echo of her actual persona. Um, Yeah, no, she had an easier role. I mean, one other way to think about this movie is it does pass the best the Bechdel test, right? Like there is a little bit of a plot. The Bechdel test being the the notion of you want to judge movies based on whether they have a lot of scenes where women talk to other women about things besides the men they are or want to be fucking. And there's like a little bit of a light plot involving an ex of one of the characters. Um, it's a recurring theme, but they really don't talk about it that much. They don't spend that much time on it. But the 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 sad reality that this movie asks you to contemplate is like, what if when we focus on women and they're not talking about the men that they wish that they were romantically involved with, they're just kind of boring, but <laughs> right? very, mm-hmm. but very well clad. Like they're wearing beautiful clothes <laughs> and they seem to be pretending to be having fun, but it's not actually fun. I mean, I feel like if this movie really wanted to please Alison Bechdel, it would have two of the characters be a couple, right? I mean, it's so well, strongly hinted that, not, not even hinted, but it's so plausible that Blanchett's character and Bullock's character would be exes. Like they, they seem to have more chemistry and more connection than anyone else. They seem to have this history. There's the scene where they go to Veselka Cafe and share lunch and come up with the plan, or rather Bullock reveals the plan. And if there had been any hint dropped in that scene that they had some sort of romantic past, the movie would have gotten so much juicier in an instant. Yeah, that would seem like a real missed opportunity. And the rest of the characters seemed just a little bit, they didn't seem specific or particular. They seemed yeah. kind of like types, like, ooh, there's the like overachieving housewife who's got too much brain power for that job, who's stifled and bored and wears Liberty Prince. And then there's uh, the, you know, stifled immigrant daughter who's working hard in the family business and getting nagged by her mom and compared to her more successful sibling in gender terms and wants to break out of the immigrant role model. And then there's the, you know, the blood 
blunt smoking hacker. That's Rihanna's character. And the streetwise pickpocket. Like, you know, they're just like literally like Oliver's in the fucking movie, you know? Yeah. It, you know, they had a shot at something cool with Helena Bonham Carter, who's, uh, as I thought, think I saw someone write, is kind of playing to her image as the manic gothic, you know, gothic pixie dream girl of your um as this washed up designer who's resurrected f- essentially to take part in this um in this heist and she's dialing in from left field in this sort of fun way but it just it as with the rest of the picture it seems underwritten and everyone appears to be pretending to have fun um as opposed to actually having fun it just makes me sad i know that we shouldn't judge the success of uh, feminism or modern womanhood based on whether it's possible to make an Oceans movie starring all these actresses that's a delight. But I'm like really disappointed. I was really looking forward to this movie and wanted it to be as fun and adventure as the regular Oceans movies. And uh, just the just the the amassing of this talent. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of our conversation about Book Club last week. How do you get these stars and put them in one place and then do something so lame with them? Yeah, two weeks in a row we've had a similar discussion. And that does make me think, well, wait, movies do need to be doing more with this let's cast women kind of initiative than than they have been doing. Or it's like mm-hmm. they've gotten just as far as let's cast women and then nobody bothered to figure anything else out. Yeah, I mean, in both in both cases, I think the writing is really to blame, right? I mean, if right. there had been a good script for either of those two movies, they would have achieved a lot more liftoff. I mean, then, of course, it's also just presentation. I'm not sure that Soderbergh's Ocean Eleven is the most gorgeously written script of all time, but that movie moves along. It's just yeah. beautifully edited and it looks elegant and the camera is doing interesting things. I'm not, su- I'm not sure it's entirely in the script because I actually think there's a lot of things in the structure of the way the script is set up that that are kind of interesting. There's the potential of like a romantic past relationship between Bullock and Blanchett, which seems uh, which would give that relationship more frisson and interest. There um, is the fact, I think noted by the Slate Spoiler Special podcast about this, that actually part of the way that their plan succeeds is because of the invisibility that a lot of them have. A bunch of them are able to play kind of workers and helpers and servers and event coordinators. And um, they're basically enlisted to invisibly do competently a lot of logistical work around the Met Gala. And that's how they infiltrate it. They're, they're, they're playing with gender roles uh, in a way that could be interesting, but just... And well, and racial and ethnic ones in a way that's not at all signposted, but is true, right? It's like the Aquafina character, the Asian woman who, right, becomes a server at the party right. who plays a waiter. Um, so it it feels like the bones are there for something that's doing something interesting, and yet it simply does not. Alan right. deficit, Alan deficit. I, but it won the box office this this past weekend. What do you make of that? It actually did really, really well. Is it one of those things where it's going to have a big opening weekend and then get bad word of mouth and no one will care? I mean, my hope is that it is successful enough, uh, and that they have tipped their hand at the George Clooney character being um, not quite dead sufficiently enough that this just like warrants Ocean's Nine and that Soderbergh comes back to direct it and that Clooney comes back and plays the role that Julia Roberts plays in the original one, which is the like collaborative slash elusive male foil to the gang of female conspirators 
Uh, and we just get to watch the movie again, but it's good this time. Yeah, actually, to watch Sandra Bullock <laughs> and George Clooney as brother and sister argue about how to pull off a heist, that's a really good movie premise. Sounds great. Sounds great. An 11th hour cameo from Brad. Brad comes in on some kind of wire <laughs> from the roof, uh, but he fucks it up. I'm ready for that. You know, I'm not saying that the secret to the movie is Ed, men, maybe just Soderbergh. I'm not sure I need the rest, but like, I'm ready for the next three of these. Like, just do make them good. Mm-hmm. Like, have it make enough money that they do it right next time. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, if we're going to get down to brass tacks that we want these movies to get better, then whether or not we like Ocean's 8, we should hope that it does monster box office so that there's more possibilities mm-hmm. of making such right. things. Yeah, I totally agree. Rooting for monster, B.O. this time around, and then more Elan the next time around. Okay, Ocean's Aid, it's at a movie uh, theater near you. Tell us what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. Moving on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, before we go any further, now is when in our podcast we typically talk about business. Uh, I guess we will again this week. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Uh, First, we have a sad and happy and sad and bittersweet announcement, which is that our production assistant and former intern, Daniel Schrader, known perhaps best to you as uh, the murderino closest to our hearts, is moving on from the Culture Gab Fest to a bigger position at the Slate Podcast Network. So we are very happy and proud about Daniel's employment, but very sad that we won't get to work with him to make our episodes each week. But that means that we are in the market for a new production assistant. We're actually looking for someone to work 20 hours a week on both the Culture Gab Fest and the Double X Gab Fest, which has a new name, The Waves, and is also going weekly. So it's 20 hours a week working on two podcasts. The position is paid, uh, and we need applicants who are available Tuesday and Wednesday mornings to come in for the recordings. Please send us a resume and cover letter explaining why you would be great at this role to productionassistant at slate.com with the subject line, production assistant, and tell us why you'd be great. We want to fill this position quickly, so get those materials in as soon as you can. Second, a reminder that Summer Strut is happening. Send us your struttiest recommendations, the songs that we can strut to. Uh, do it on Twitter using hashtag Summer Strut, or find our Summer Strut post on facebook.com slash culturefest and leave your suggestions there. In Slate Plus today, I will be quizzing Dana about a question that arose for me about cinematography when I was attempting to shoot my life for Instagram stories. To hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. <laughs> Uh, keep this maniacal laughter as part of the intro to this. Uh, I got nothing to say. I don't know. Instagram. I kept asking my daughter to 
tell me what a story was and I tried to post some stories. I think I finally got some up there, but I don't I don't fully understand the concept uh Julia Turner other than Instagram went and stole the basic business the business model of Snapchat from it, which is, you know, you post something called a story, it evaporates after 24 hours. So I guess that changes your attitude towards what you post and why you post it. But um, I'm having trouble seeing um, much more to this activity. So you got to you got to walk me through this one. Steve, how many Instagram stories did you post? Uh, I lost count after one. one. <laughs> <laughs> Steve scratches his head. I don't know why I don't understand this thing that I've not interacted with at all. Yeah, what a mystery. <laughs> it's, a, it's a text with no meanings to suss out. Yeah. If only there were some way to comprehend it or engage with it. Did you at least see my Instagram stories making fun of you for not doing Instagram stories? Uh, I heard a news report or two about those, but since I can't barely... Uh, uh, maneuver my way around the website I wasn't able to find them oh I have to just tell our listeners about the most brilliant one which Steve only knows about secondhand through me which is that when it was I think 40 hours or something until recording and Steve had still not made his face known on Instagram much less in Instagram stories Julie posted a story that consisted of three photos each one a bright red billboard as in three billboards outside Ebbing Missouri and what did they say it was something like it said 44.5 hours till taping and still no stories, question mark? How come, Metcalf? <laughs> I, Chief Willoughby'd you. I, I would never ask you to stop making fun of me, Julia, but I would love it if you would do my job for me. Um, I do have lots and lots and lots of thoughts about Instagram stories, Have having now been making Instagram stories for a few weeks. So I think it might be useful to describe my broad relationship to Instagram proper. Instagram reg, Instagram flat, Instagram square. I don't know what you call it. Instagram non-story um, before getting into what I think of the stories form um, because everybody has a different relationship to Instagram and then that I think would inform your relationship to stories. So I tried Instagram first for this show. So my Instagram account has always been public and been consumable by people who I care about and respect, the listeners to the show, but who are not my necessarily intimate or personal acquaintances. So I've always posted still photos. Um, I don't post people. I almost never post uh, people or faces of people. One time I posted a photo of my sister and it was like immediately three times more liked than anything I do post. Um, but I just don't, I don't share my most intimate personal life full of people. I use it as an area to exercise my eye and I try to take pictures and do interesting compositions and just play with uh, the relationship between the, the uh, caption and the image. And, um, you know, like I think I post a fairly cliched array of like arty skies and sidewalk cracks. Um, but that's been my Instagram style. Uh, Instagram stories gives you this bewildering palette of tools. Like Instagram itself, when I first got onto it, was like so constrained. It has more options now with filters and you know, different aspect ratios, but you used to literally only be able to post a square photo and apply one of like six filters to it or something and you couldn't customize them and it was hard to rotate like you just posted a thing and you wrote a funny thing and you could try to make a little bit of content hay out of the juxtaposition. Instagram stories, one of the reasons I had barely done them before prepping for this segment is because 
For an Instagram story, you can post uh, a text, like a, a, a shot of just text on a flat background. You can post uh, a still photograph that you have taken previously. You can post um, a video with or without sound, with or without captions on top, with or without emoji on top. You can use one of several effects like a horrifying kind of uh, zoom scare effect. You can use boomerang, which is the little sort of recurring GIF format where you take a little clip of video and play it backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And so people look like they're jitterbugging around. Like the sheer... Uh, capacity of the tool is bewildering. Also, the user interface, confusing as fuck. Like, I would often want to capture something in real time and be like, oh, this seems like maybe a storyable moment. And I'd be like, wait, okay, I poke the thing where it has my story, but then I have to poke it again to add to the story. And then I have to poke the add to the story thing. And then I have to pick the video. Oh, not live video. I don't want to live stream. What am I, fucking Ariana Grande? No, like I'm, uh, you know, and then like whatever I was trying to record had passed. So I felt like a fuddy-duddy. And I felt overwhelmed by aesthetic options. Um, and then when I started to figure it out, it became more fun. But it just made me realize, like, I'm a shitty director. Like, I don't, I don't, like, making videos is not a thing I have any instincts for. And it was fun to cultivate them. Um, but, but, you know, kind of, kind of bewildering. And then my last thought is that so you, you make all this stuff, you put it up. The kind of feedback you get when you post a story is very different than the feedback you get on a still photo. So when you post a still photo on Instagram, you get likes. So people, you know, heart it if they like it. With Instagram stories, you're able to see who saw your story, but you don't get any that all that tells you is like who's on Instagram and watches stories and like maybe is a little bit more interested in your stories than someone else's or something. But like it doesn't actually tell you anything qualitative about what the aesthetic response was to the thing that you made. So it's sort of freeing to not have the feedback, but it also feels kind of bewildering because you're used to feedback in this context. Then you feel lame for giving a shit about feedback. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think that's my main that's my main set of thoughts. Wild, co bewildering capacity and then total opacity of response. Oh, and then finally the disappearing thing. Like by the time I figured it out enough to make a couple things that I liked, then I was like, why is it going away after 24 hours? I worked, I made such a funny joke. I made fun of Steve in such an amusing manner. I wanted it to be perpetuated for time <laughs> immemorial, but now it's gone and nobody can see how cleverly I made fun of Steve. But of course, that is the, also the appeal to many of the Instagram story is that it disappears after 24 hours. So it's like Snapchat in that way. And as one listener, somebody who knew that we were doing this story wrote to me, that also makes it sort of ideal for parents, for example, who don't want photos of their kids floating around in the Internet forever, but want their friends to be able to see them. It's, it, it captures that Snapchat quality. Yeah. I posted a video of my son, which I've never done before on this account, but one of my sons beat me at chess and was just like having a joyful moment of triumph, uh, taunting me with the black king of mine that he had captured. And so I snapped a little video of him gloating and he like uh, picturesquely flicked the king at me like right as I was shooting it. <laughs> and it was, like a, drop. it was like a lovely little story. And I posted it with no sound and the caption, the victor. And there was my son's face. And now it's gone. Nobody can ever see that video again. But I can't even see that video again if I want. I believe, Julie, that there is an option for you to save a story to your profile if you want it to live on. And of course, you could privately archive it for yourself as well. I had one response also to what you were saying about the uh, 
the intimacy of the response, right? The, the response mechanism with stories. Um, a, a, a longtime dear friend of our show, Steve McFarland, who used to be our official show photographer before he got married and moved to Denmark. And we ended up having this little correspondence and messages because you can send someone a private message, right? Saying, I liked your Instagram story. And unlike the comments on the bottom of a regular Instagram post, only you two see it, which is this nice kind of option to reconnect with somebody who moved to Denmark, who you haven't talked to in a while. And he was saying that, that what he personally loves about stories is that they often lead to surprising interactions that you wouldn't have if it was in a more public sphere. I mean, I felt like mine were literal stories. You know, I felt very constrained by the idea that I had to present some complete narrative of something. So one day when I was just sitting at my desk working all day, I photographed all the books that I was reading and the little commentary on the books. Or um, over the weekend, we had an English tea with an actual English family, and it was wonderful. And we were sort of talking about the tea time tradition. And so I just documented the tea, like, here are the cups, here's the cake, here's the here's toast the we made. Yeah, we sipped some sauterne with cake. Exactly. You saw my story. Yes. And I think a, a, a really innovative Instagram storyer of which I'm now that I'm watching them I'm starting to discover this style is more able to just kind of smash something out that the story comes together from disparate parts that aren't necessarily groomed into a totality right and that you don't feel like I need to present this entire experience from all its angles and then talk about what it meant and how I felt that it needs to be visually told and that you're using those tools those funky emoji whatever writing tools in a way that kind of enhances the photograph, but also creates a counter narrative to it. I mean, you need to be a little bit more more playful and uh, and slipshod than I was willing to let myself be. <laughs> I don't know. I, I really enjoyed your story explorations. I thought they were very fun. I actually think one of my favorite Instagram storyers is Stella Bugby, who's the editor of The Cut over at New York, the sort of women's vertical that they have. Um, and it occurred to me from watching her stories, she does a lot of sort of one funny one-offs about her life, but she also does a lot that are actually fairly concerted and constructive little uh, multi-step narratives. Like you sort of, you click through five or six little different slides or, or snippets and you kind of get an arc. Um, and I was like, why is Stella Bugby so good at this? Why is she the the story or who I can most count on to provide a satisfying story experience? And I was like, oh, you know what an Instagram story is? It's a magazine. Like it's actually an incredibly, it's like a digital magazine like format because what you have, what you create with the with looking through multiple pages of stories is a page turning experience. So you can play with text, you can play with image because it's digital, you can play with movement. Uh, and then you can create kind of like a reveal and a page flippy editorial mix of image and text that is extremely related to, I think, what uh, print magazines can do with design, layout, and text. And I think that's part of what appeals to me about the form. It's a lot of labor that goes into making them good, and I'm not sure that the labor to satisfaction ratio is going to keep me storying forever. And I also... I haven't figured out a version of myself that I like in Instagram stories yet, except for the taunting Steve version. I'm always happy with that version <laughs> of myself. Um, you know, like, it's it's just a real art. I don't know. I came away with admiration and also feeling like actually the ones I really like are pretty carefully constructed and are not like wine time. Mm. So is is it fair to say that there's been a division of labor in um, – social media, especially given the dark turn of our politics, which is that, you know, Twitter obviously is totally consumed with coping psychically 
uh, with the Trump era and editorializing upon it. Um, and it's, it's overwhelmingly text-based, opinionated, and kind of defined by the big accounts you know, run by prominent journalists, um, you know, commenting in real time on the, on the Trump era. And that the old sort of lifestyle aspect of social media, which was social media sort of 1.0, has migrated more into Instagram. And Facebook remains sort of a hybrid of the two, a sort of awkward hybrid of the two. I think that's right. I, I think Instagram feels decreasingly political and Twitter feels increasingly political and Facebook just feels awk. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, very awk. I mean, you'd be regarded as close to insane if you tried to re- revive, uh, you know, Twitter as the place where you talked about your white port and tonic, you know, summer drink or something. Well, right. There was that bot that went around a couple of weeks ago that surfaced. You could follow. It was like a thread or a bot or something. And it it showed you what your Twitter timeline mm-hmm. would have looked like in 2008 if you were following 10 years ago, everybody you follow now. So, you know, of all the whatever, a couple thousand people you follow, say 400 of them were tweeting in 2008, it just shows you, like, what were all their tweets? And they were Instagram stories, except for they were text. It was like, what a hot day in New York City. Everybody's in the park. You know, like it was not, <laughs> it was a completely different use of the platform than what we're used to. Yeah, if nothing else, this do, this topic was instructive to me and in that it made me think about Instagram and the way I use it. Whether or not I keep on doing stories or watching stories, it, it, it kind of refreshed my love for Instagram. And maybe for the reasons that you're talking about, I started to realize that just naturally, really, I will be on Twitter during the week and Instagram during the weekends. I mean, Instagram to me is, is sort of part of relaxation, you know, um, checking in on people you know, because I only follow other people if I actually know them. Um, and Twitter just seems so associated with work days and politics and the news cycle. And there's something nice about that, that, you know, it made me recognize Instagram as a kind of restful place where you just go and visit other people's gaze upon the world. Yeah, I, I'm i not sure I'm going to be a storier for life, but I really enjoyed the aesthetic play of it, like trying to learn a new way. I kind of know at this point, like, what's a photo that feels like a me Instagram post, you know, that like fits in with the vibe of what I'm what I do on Instagram, not to be too precious about it. Um, And do in part that was doing it for the segment. So feeling necessarily shameless about it. And I was public in stories about like one of the things I storied was Daniel's email explaining to Dana how to use Instagram stories and, you know, noting that Dana had posted her first story and that I was excited about it. Um, So that made me unselfconscious, but that, that idea of, learning and play and a slightly less self-conscious self-expression is appealing. Although fundamentally, once you've watched a lot of Instagram stories, you end up only wanting watching the ones where the self-expression is fairly conscious and focused and good. Um, So I don't know. It seems like a fun little internet game you could spend a bunch of time on. It remains to be seen whether I shall. But you'll keep on watching them? I found them more fun to make than to watch, honestly, most of them. Like, I think the general Instagram story quality level is low. Get out there, people. Let's see some hustle in your Instagram stories. I found them just exactly as much fun to make as to watch. Okay. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, comment on all of our various Instagram feeds. Uh, You can do that, I guess, at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. In 1999, a semi-washed-up chef sent an unsolicited essay to The New Yorker 
magazine. They published it under the title Don't Eat Before Reading This. It was a tangy expose of the high-end restaurant kitchen. The essay became the book Kitchen Confidential, and that semi-washed-up chef became host of the Food Network show Cook's Tour, then Travel Channel show No Reservations. And then, of course, is CNN show Parts Unknown, Anthony Bourdain. Uh, died last week. We're joined now by Helen Rosner of The New Yorker magazine to talk about his legacy. Uh, Helen, welcome to our show. Hi, Steve. So uh, I would have said maybe Anthony Bourdain was a food personality, but that's ridiculous. I mean, he's kind of an ambassador for humanity. You wrote a beautiful remembrance of him. I think you knew him personally. Um, Talk a little bit about why no single job title comes cl- or any single descriptor comes close to capturing who Bourdain was and what his uh, legacy appears to have been. Yeah, you know, I think um, particularly in the wake of his really tragic death, I've been seeing so many people refer to him as a celebrity chef or a chef or a, a food celebrity. And in such a profound and material way, he was absolutely none of those things. Um you know, Bourdain bristled a lot at the at the phrase celebrity chef when it was applied to him. He would point out that he hasn't cooked professionally in probably close to two decades. And uh, even for the last five years, as he's been the host of, of Parts Unknown on CNN, it wasn't really even a food show. It was a, a show on which people ate, for sure. But, you know, there was no culinary instruction. There was no rigorous culinary history unless it was in service of a broader point about humanity and culture and the interconnectedness of all things. I think that uh, he was, and I I don't use this word lightly, he was a storyteller. um, And perhaps more than that, he was a story amplifier, what he was extraordinarily talented at. And you can see the legacy of this as early as that first piece in The New Yorker in 1999 was looking at a space, a room, a country, a group of people, and seeing what was actually there and telling that story to a group of people who had not yet been able or willing to see it. I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about the role that food has played in our culture over the last two decades during which he became so prominent strikes me as interesting. And I'm wondering how you see those two things intersecting. They're absolutely connected, for sure. I mean, and I think that's a, a, a an absolutely on point observation. Um, you know, not to not to get too encyclopedic about everything, but I think it's really impossible to overstate how disconnected American culture has been from our foodways for the last X number of decades, certainly post-World War II and into the sort of industrial food production era, um, which has created paradoxically fertile ground um, in the 80s and the 90s for a rediscovery of food as a thing that is connected to us and agriculture and the sort of geographic determinism of what we eat and where we live and, you know, why it makes sense to grow corn in soil that naturally would grow grasses because the nutrients that feed naturally occurring prairie grass would also feed corn. I mean, this is something that in many parts of the world and not just things that we might think of as as sort of less developed countries, but like in Europe and in South America and in many, many nations with a particular exception on the United States, are much more directly connected into daily life. Food is much more inherently seasonal. And because of American industrial food production, we had become culturally very distanced from that. And our our notion of what was good and aspirational and admirable in food culture was largely dictated by our notions of grandness and wealth and continental Europe. Um, 
into that, and I realize that's a sort of extensive background, but into that in, in the in the 80s and then in the 90s, and then Bourdain kind of lassoed this and wrote it and shaped its direction, there was this rediscovery that food didn't have to just be sustenance. It didn't just have to be toffee-nosed maitre d's and white tablecloths. It could be something of joy and intelligence and creativity and discovery. Coupled with that was also the renaissance of the chef. Um, before we entered this current moment of the celebrity chef and the sort of chef-driven restaurant and all of these things, the most important figure in a restaurant was the maitre d'. It was the, the person who was actually in the dining room. And I think that the return of the chef is something that Bourdain was absolutely instrumental in. Um, Kitchen Confidential, which was published in 2000, was a blockbuster bestseller. It, I think, has remained a bestseller for over 20, well, almost 20 years now. Um, and what it did was really pull back the curtain on not fussy, fancy chef culture, but this very swashbuckling pirate ship Lost Boys kind of rock star, badass, misbehaving kind of culture where there was a lot of drug use and there was a lot of drinking and there was a lot of screwing around. And it was an instant and shocking injection of rock and roll culture into something that had previously been very stuffy and very attuned to notions of wealth and elitism. It suddenly became very accessible. So I think it's really, you know, not possible to be too emphatic about the idea that Anthony Bourdain created the era of the celebrity chef, um, not just the packaged TV celebrity, but the idea of someone who was like driven by butchery and covered in tattoos and swears up a storm and drinks a ton of bourbon every night. I mean, this whole thing that is now very cliche was at the time that he was introducing the picture, thrillingly fresh. I mean, so sexy, so alluring. And then, of course, he particularly in recent years, um, I think, saw what he wrought in terms of this caricature of the swashbuckling, aggressively masculine, fairly juvenile bro chef and had, had has been, well, spent a lot of time in the, in the last years of his life trying to retell that story in a way that was less destructive to the people who took it as a, a model as opposed to a cautionary tale. But, you know, you're absolutely right. Like the rise of food culture and of food as a as a cultural lens as opposed to its own thing, as food as something that everybody could have cultural access to, was very much influenced by him. And it was also something he took an incredible amount of advantage of. I mean, as his mandate, as his quest became this thing of global ambassadorship, bringing together people who are connected by fundamental humanity, food is one of the universals, right? I mean, everybody eats dinner, everybody cooks dinner, and sitting down to share a meal is, as cliche as it might might sound, it's true that sitting down to share a meal together is, is an intimate act of brotherhood and peace, you know? And it's very hard to dehumanize a person when you are sharing a table with them. Yeah, I mean, in relation to that swashbuckling stereotype that you're talking about that he introduced and then later to some degree regretted and, you know, publicly spoke about sort of, you know, softening, I think that was what I thought Anthony Bourdain was because I just knew him from the Kitchen Confidential bestseller. I don't really watch cooking shows on TV or food shows. And I didn't really realize that his show had gone through all these iterations. So when we were prepping this segment and I started watching a bunch of, um, I think it was some No Reservations and, and also a lot of Parts Unknown, 
I was really struck by that exact transformation that you were talking about. I think I was expecting, I always had this sense of him that was sort of generically pleasant and fun and like you say, sort of rollicking and swashbuckling. But the gentleness and thoughtfulness and the beautiful writing of his show, which he wrote the scripts for, right? The voiceover mm-hmm. script that he reads, he also writes, just just really blew me away that, that he had kind of made that transformation in his own life and become, like you say, this sort of ambassador for much more than food. And I think that that maybe also speaks to why the reaction, the public response to his death over the last few days has just been so overwhelming. He meant so much to to so many people um, who watched those shows. And especially, I think, coming at this moment under Trump and this moment of xenophobia and closing borders and, you know, mm-hmm. everyone, you know, sort of uh, ginning up fear of the other, that the idea that we lost this person by his own hand has just really been hard to take. Yeah, and hard to take in a week with an, with another um, prominent suicide in Kate Spade. He had a history of addiction. He had a history of anger, of darkness. And I think that as anybody who has dealt with addiction or been close to someone who has is aware, addiction is something that never really goes away. It's just sublimated into something else. And depression has nothing to do with the circumstances of your life. You can be the most successful person surrounded by paradise. And depression tells you that it's not enough and you're not enough for it. So it was a shock. I mean, I'm still reeling from his death. I We knew each other. We were friends. We weren't, you know, incredibly intimate. But, but you know, I was blown away both by the news of my friend's death, but also by the death of someone who I think has been the son around whom so many things orbited, not just the world of food and food celebrity, but he was really the anti-Trump, you know? I mean, he was a Mm -hmm. person who embodied everything that is the opposite of what the Trump administration has been putting forward in terms of the way that we should relate to people outside of our country or outside of our neighborhoods or outside of our churches or outside of our own backyards. Right. Curiosity, empathy, fearlessness, communication, listening. I mean, right. The, the idea of food as a vehicle for, you know, friendship and hospitality to strangers as opposed to xenophobia, it's the, it's the exact opposite. I'd love it if you could maybe finish the segment by recounting uh, the story you have about him and the word feminism. It's something that I've been carrying around with me for a while now, and I was really excited to, to eventually drop it like a bomb in some story, and I, I never really imagined it would end up being an obituary. Um, I had interviewed Tony for a, a feature for Eater, where I used to be an editor. A, 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 it was actually the, the night of the Electoral College certification of Donald Trump's election. We were sitting at a yakitori restaurant in um, on the west side in Manhattan, getting pretty drunk on beer and just talking about the world and the sort of despair that we were all facing. And as our conversation flew all over so many topics, the one thing that we hadn't directly addressed was women and things like reproductive rights and feminism. And I asked him point blank if he thought of that if he thought of himself as a feminist. Um and the answer that he gave was a circuitous yes, but he never actually said the word yes. He talked about how important reproductive rights were to him. He talked about how much he deeply related to the plight of women and gay men and queer people and trans people, but came short of actually 
coming right out and saying, yes, I'm a feminist. He sort of said, I'm not, no, what does that make me? It makes me a New Yorker. It makes me a human. Like, I don't know. Why do we have to put a, a label on it? Um, and when I last saw him uh, a couple of months ago at a book party after he had become in the last year or two a, an incredibly outspoken advocate for the Me Too movement and a huge ally for women and victims of sexual assault and harassment, which was a a role that he took on because of his relationship with Asia Argento, the, the Italian actor and filmmaker who was one of Harvey Weinstein's victims. Um, I ran into him at, at this book party and, you know, we said our hellos and we were chit-chatting. And at one point he sort of reached out and, and put his hand on my shoulders. I was walking past to talk to someone else and he grabbed me and he said, Helen, you know, I've been thinking about that time that we had that conversation and you asked me if I was a feminist and I was too afraid to say yes. And I was like, yeah, you know, like blah, 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 Tony, like you've done enough. And he said, no, 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 write this down. I'm a fucking feminist. And it was an incredible moment. I mean, you know, time stopped. He, he was 61 years old and he was able to awaken to the fact that he was a feminist. And I think that this just embodies so much about him that he was always willing to grow, always willing to see what needed to be done, to learn more about, you know, unexploded ordinance in Laos or like the plight of women right in his own backyard. He was constantly looking to what he could do to be better than to use his platform to make the world better. All right. Well, Helen, thank you so much for your beautiful remembrance in The New Yorker and for coming on our podcast. It was really special. No, thank you for having me. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? I'm going to do two short endorsements today. One of them comes out of our Anthony Bourdain segment. As I said to, to Helen when we were talking about Bourdain, I mistakenly went through all these years that he was doing these great TV shows thinking of him as this kind of extreme eater and that it was all about, you know, I'm going to eat the grossest or spiciest thing in the world. And in fact, he specifically sort of came out against that very macho food culture in in these shows. I'm really digging in and loving them in spite of the pall of sadness cast over them by the fact I'm discovering them only because he is gone. But the particular episode of Parts Unknown that I wanted to recommend is not one that's made it into a lot of these roundups, like the one where he goes to Hanoi with President Obama, or there's a bunch of great ones where he's out with his friend, the chef Eric Repair. Um, but this is one where he goes to Budapest. Did either of you see the Budapest Parts mm, Unknown? No. Um, so the the sort of celebrity guest that he eats with, or at least part of the episode, is Vilma Zygmunt, the great cinematographer who shot such classics as the Robert Altman movie McCabe and Mrs. Miller, uh, Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate was his, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was shot by Zygmunt. I mean, he's, he's it's one classic after another. And Bourdain, among his many other interests, it turns out, is this passionate cinephile who's crazy about Vilma Zygmunt's entire filmography and wants to hear about how he achieved various effects and how he thinks of cinematography. And so as they're wandering around Budapest, which is this architecturally incredible city, which I didn't know had, you know, this beautiful kind of, I guess, sort of Belle Epoque style architecture everywhere, and they're eating these crazy things like pancakes covered in chicken livers, and, uh, and they're talking about cinema. And there's a really, really beautiful scene where they're at a table with a lot of people, slightly buzzed, having some great Hungarian food. And uh, and Zygmunt talks about poetic realism and about how he and Laszlo Kovacs, another Hungarian cinematographer who's a good friend of his, 
how they conceived of, you know, their sort of style of poetic realism, that they wanted to shoot what was there, but that they wanted to add this kind of lyrical extra something. And uh, it was both a very Bourdainian kind of sentiment and just a great dinner conversation. So the Budapest episode of Parts Unknown with Vilmos Zsigmond, that's one of my endorsements. Another one is for an event that's happening this weekend in Los Angeles that I really, really wish I could be at. Because my daughter has her end-of-year dance recital, I can't get on a plane and go to this, but I want to encourage anyone who's an Angelino to get there to go to go be part of the uh, Buster Keaton weekend. So June 16th, this coming Saturday, has been declared Buster Keaton Day in Los Angeles, and the reason that happened is because the Buster Keaton Society is doing a bunch of events. And so there are going to be things like tours of places in the city where his films were shot. There's going to be the dedication of a plaque at the place where his studio was that the society finally got made after a lot of fundraising because this spot has gone unmarked or I think actually marked in the wrong place. There's a plaque, but it's in the wrong spot for many, many years. So they're addressing that. Uh, Leonard Malton is going to be there, who's a a huge lifelong fan and who met Keaton in his childhood and is going to, I think, give some talks about him. You can go to BusterKeaton.org and read about all these events, but without attending everything, you can just go to some of them and they all look really wonderful. I wish I was going to be there. So um, please go in my stead and enjoy BusterKeaton.org. That sounds really cool. Um, Julia, what do you have? Uh, You can file this under Julia Turner Believes the Sky is Blue. I sometimes like to endorse a wildly popular and revered and esteemed cultural object that is merely new to me. I sometimes get some side eye from my more educated co-hosts, Dana and Steve, and I'm going to fearlessly sally forth again to say that the movie The Long Goodbye the adaptation of the Raymond Chandler book that I read from and endorsed at our 10th anniversary live show. Uh, the Altman by, movie? By Robert Altman. Photographed by Vilmos Zygmunt. I knew that I had just seen a movie by him, actually, when you were talking about him. And I was like, what is it that I recently saw? He shot quite a few Altman movies. What a fine movie. Very good movie. Highly recommend that you watch this movie. Yeah, Uh, that's actually a really good sort of Robert Altman starter drug. I mean, I think if you start watching that movie or Nashville, Nashville's one too, you're going to want to explore his whole filmography immediately. I mean, I've seen a lot of Altman and I like a lot of Altman. There was some combination because Altman is playing with the noir of the Chandler, but setting it in the 70s explicitly, despite sticking with the kind of 30s, 40s noir ethos. and and almost explicitly having Elliot Gould's character have a time traveler vibe to him. Like he's not just a 70s version of a private dick. He's almost kind of a throwback. Um, he's playing with these constraints of form very explicitly uh, in a way that strike sparks like the juxtaposition of the extreme formalism and kind of like the shaggy looseness that I associate with his work to me was more compelling than some other Altman work I've seen I mean not not more compelling I like basically all the Altman I've seen but he seemed to be doing something different and distinct and to me very productive in this movie that I really loved so if it's been on your list as it has been on mine for a while uh, you will have a lovely night uh, watching this movie and I recommend mm. it. This week I'm going to um, endorse something that my daughter introduced me to. It's called Girl in Red. Uh, it's a girl named Marie who's 19 years old. She calls herself a girl um, in um, Norway who writes, records, and produces her own music from her bedroom in Norway. This was made 
for the psyche of uh, as a salve for the psyche of Steve Metcalf. It's great uh, scando pop indie pop. Anyway, it's sweet, it's sharp, it's funny, it's great songwriting. She only has four or five songs. More are coming, I'm sure, because she's starting to gather uh, seven-figure hits on YouTube. But Girl in Red, check it out, is wonderful. Dana, thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us, as always, at culturefest at slate.com. We do actually love hearing from you or drop us a note at our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. We have a producer too. His name is Benjamin Frisch, production assistant Daniel Schrader. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf, and we'll see you soon. 